Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Just to remind us where we are, we are at the snap, we are at the burning bush, we're at the extended conversation between God and Moshe. We are at Moshe's uh, learning what is being put on Moshe's shoulders, what it's going to take from him. We, we we know the story well, so so it's hard to forget what we have or have not yet actually read in 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 the actual verses. But we know that this is a moment of transition of leadership or placement of leadership on Moshe's shoulders and Moshe's hesitancy. There's a lot been written about Moshe's hesitancy in terms of um, was it hesitancy regarding himself, hesitancy regarding the people he was being asked to lead, or hesitancy regarding Aaron, which we may or may not get to today. Um, and the last, the last bit we spent some weeks on was the series of signs and wonders that God shows to Moshe, both perhaps to convince Moshe that this God's a real God, and perhaps that Moshe will then go into the land of Egypt equipped with some magical wonders so that Moshe can convince others, right? Putting his hand into his bosom, coming out white, coming back in, and it's returning the way it should be. Um, and then we get to verse eight. So there had been, um, well, let, let's just read the shot of verse eight, and then we'll get to the Rashi. Uh, and and let me let me start us off, and then I'll ask for a reader uh, later on. And behold, God says to Moshe, if they will not believe you, and they will not heed, to the voice, the impact maybe, we talked about that a little bit, of the first sign, they will indeed believe to the voice or impact of the second sign, right? So remember the first sign was the um, staff being turned into a snake and then going back to a, a staff, which is going to be uh, uh, kind of preminiscent, if that's a word, of the interaction he's going to have with the uh, Egyptians. Um, and uh, the second sign is the uh, momentary, temporary leprosy. We know it's not leprosy, but there's no better English word. Sarad, with which Moshe is stricken before he is healed. And somehow God says, okay, if they don't believe this, this the staff to snake the staff, they're going to believe the, ha- the normal hand to the white flaky hand to the normal hand. Why? Okay. So um, since we may have done this, Rashi, let me do this a little bit quicker, and then we'll certainly slow down on verse nine. Right. So Rashi's trying to uh, answer the question: wh- What is it about the second sign that seems to be more convincing than the first sign? Is it just two magic tricks are better than one? Maybe I'll even pause here for a second. Whether you remember having read this or not, is there anything that that you would say if if you were the commentator here as to what is significant about the secondary sign of leprosy or le- a leprosy being um, in place and then healed. All right. Let us uh, Sue, is your hand up? Finish chewing. I want your choke. <laughs> it's almond butter. It's not toast. It's dry. Um, it's, even hard, it's even harder to speak through almond butter. <laughs> um. Well, leprosy was really terrifying and very personal for them, and they had no no cure for it, right? I mean, leprosy was a plague. So, um, you know, it's one thing up to throw snakes on the ground. It's an entirely different thing to throw COVID at everyone. Interesting. 
So the first one might just seem like flashy magic. The second one portends, you know, their, their own well-being and perhaps this God who's represented by this shaliach being able to afflict them and heal them from those kinds of personal plagues. Interesting. Good. Joanna? I wasn't the one who said this, but I believe that the last time we met, someone made a beautiful connection to Miriam having leprosy and Miriam having, um, you know, made a mistake in speaking out against um, her brother and, and getting leprosy as a result, too. And so to hear it's sort of like um, a little bit anticipatory. I think both of them, you know, Moshe himself will make mistakes and the people of Israel and that, you know, that's going to happen and we're going to have to work together to overcome that. Okay, so um, another way of understanding this verse you're saying, Joanna, perhaps um, um, shame someone else in someone else's name, is that this is presaging a relationship between God and the Jewish people where there's going to be um, perhaps an, an, an impact for sins that we do, um, the, the plague of a, of a leprous condition, and then, and then God's healing as Miriam is going to experience in the desert. And somehow that makes it maybe m- more personal than, again, maybe just a fancy trick. Um, it's hard really to, to reify this and imagine the mind of the Israelite slave servant not yet knowing the Miriam story, some, somehow actually being more convinced by the second one. Um, but we're, 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 um, we're searching here because there seems to be a significance to, to number two, but it's not at all obvious why. And then we'll, we'll lead, read Rashi's answer in a second. Tova? Um, I think someone else also said in a previous session um, that it also seems to rebound back on Moshe in that this prolonged conversation is indicating his hesitancy, his seeming doubt at times, his uh, on God himself, and that this is, in a sense, a presaging of this is revealing something about you, Moshe, mm. that you're having this brief experience. And I don't know if that was a general association with Sarat, that it, it reflected some kind of internal corruption, if you will, uh, and that, that therefore this would also convey to the people of Israel that if they don't follow, it reflects something about themselves, about themselves internally. Great. So if we, if, if we lean into the idea that the ancient Israelites in Egypt already also knew that this condition came to you for something that you did wrong, right? Um, then perhaps their, 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 their leader exper- you know, experiencing it in front of them and then being healed from it uh, or their potential leader might, might, might bring them along in a more you know, personal, intimate way than the previous one. And that's kind of where Rashi goes. Let me read that again. We may have already read it, but it's okay to read it again. They will certainly believe the second sign. Once you, Moshe, say to them, this is now Rashi speaking in God's voice because the verse is in God's voice. It was because of you that I was afflicted. Remember that in the, and maybe you don't remember that in the previous few verses, Rashi says that 
the, the reason why the second sign is a leprous one is not just a random representation of powers, but Moshe deserved it. Moshe deserved the momentary leprosy. Why did he deserve the momentary leprosy? Because he spread Lashon Hara about the Israelites saying they're not going to be believable. They're not going to be believing people. So Moshe articulated a calumny against the Israelites. You know, midah keneged midah. If you embarrass someone else, even not in their presence, then you deserve to be white-faced and embarrassed as well. So Moshe was stricken with something that he had deserved. And God says, when you tell them that on the way to your becoming a leader, you did something you shouldn't have done, which is speak poorly about them, and then you paid the price for it, where am I? It's because of you that I was afflicted because I spoke Lashon Hara about you. Ah, now you're going to have some believability. Now you're going to have a certain amount of street cred. Because they already knew. We have to lean in in this commentary to this understanding that the, that the Israelites ensconced in, uh, in Egypt know the full story of Breshit, right? They have the full inherited understanding of the story of their ancestors. And so they knew the parashot in Breshit and the stories that happened to them, including shehamizdavgin laharalahem, that those who would, it's, a, it's an odd verb, lehizdavig means to, it's from the root zug meaning couple, those who, who kind of, who, who get close to the Israelites, but for evil purposes, lokim banigaim, are afflicted with uh, plagues. We have several places in uh, Breshit with Avraham and, um, and, and, and Yaakov, sorry, and Yitzchak and Avimelech and, the, and, 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 uh, and others where the, 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 the king of Grar, Avimelech, and, and in the king of Egypt back then get afflicted because of things that they're going to do to Avraham or Isaac and their wives. Kegon parova Avimelech b'shvil sarah like the situation where the Avimelech gets smitten because of what he's going to potentially do to Sarah. So this, this has several moves. First, we assume the Israelites knew those stories. Then we assume that if they know those stories, they trust that someone, um, so, someone presenting a God who's going to properly punish someone who has done evil to the Israelites is, is, is telling a, a believable story, even though, parentheses, they've been waiting hundreds of years uh, for that very God to appear and nothing had happened yet. And therefore, God says to Moshe, when you come and you say, what God do I represent? I represent the God that you know. How do you know that? Because I momentarily did something I should have done. I was basically an, an enemy to the Jewish people. That's, that's a strong way of saying it. But I spoke poorly about you. And I was stricken. See, I, will, I can do it again. I can show that to you. That will open the hearts of the Israelites to say, ah, this is a representative of that God. I may not be willing to follow a charlatan who could do a magic trick with a, a staff and a snake, but this is leading us back to um, the narrative that we, that we stemmed from. All of that, I think, is built into these three lines of Rashi. Let me pause for reactions, comments, questions. I see Larry and Diane's hand up. Yeah, I, I like better the explanation that there was historical memory. It, it's not that we have to believe it was historical memory, but Rashi almost always believes that there was this historical memory, that whatever he knew from the Torah, that the people knew at that time. 
I can't think of specific examples, but we've done it several times where, where Rashi has explained that, of course, the people knew that this had happened. But I like it a lot better than thinking that they knew what would happen in the future, that Moshe himself would be struck um, by, the same, by the same disease as a punishment. And I think, although I wouldn't make too much of it, I think it's interesting that when, in the Torah, when people don't remember, we're told explicitly they don't remember. And Pharaoh arose who did not remember or didn't know uh, Joseph. And I think that there's a lesson here, and I'm really stretching it, which is uh, a people which does not know its history uh, is then condemned to make mistakes based upon that history. So the fact that we knew what what we should have known, what Surat was, and we should have then believed that this was an important sign, um, is that message. Yeah, I don't think that's stretching at all. I think that I think that's exactly the thrust of of the Rashi commentary. The reason, like it, it resolves the problem in the verse, but in doing so, it's a little sermonette on, it, on on being on being aware of your inherited story, so that you can see the signs, the signs of of, of who's on your side and who and, and when God is bursting through history again to to be with you. So I know I think that's exactly the thrust of of, of the midrash here. Um, to answer, it's a Joel's question. According to the Rashi, the Rashi on verse six, Mitzurat Kashaleg, that Moshe's temporary um, Sara'at is because he had said the words Lo Yaminuli. They will not. They will not believe me. They are not. They are not trusting people. They're. They're not. And and I mean maybe by extension, and therefore they're not worthy of being saved. But the specific reason is because he said they will not. They will not believe me. Um, Joanna, it's interesting that. Um... While we have these earlier stories of people being stricken by a plague, I don't believe we're specifically told it was leprosy. And Rashi, too, here is connecting Lashon Hara specifically to leprosy. And so I wonder maybe if you reverse it, now it becomes much more interesting later when we get to the Miriam story and you read of um, her getting leprosy there, you know, it. If Rash, because I think most people, when you ask them, what's your association of leprosy in the Torah? The, the first answer is the Miriam story. And um, so I wonder if Rashi in his, you know, kind of way that there's no earlier late in the Torah um, is sort of anticipating that and, you know, taking what happened to the forefathers and now setting up a deeper connection specifically between um, leprosy and Lashonara. Very nice. Very nice. Right. Because what Joanna is saying, I think is really apt. When, when, when we get to the Miriam story, we don't say, Oh, this is, this brings us back to the pre-exodus moment at the burning bush. But, but if we read it through a Rashi lens, then we, that we do, we, we, we have a, we have an antecedent to that story. We have a, we have a, um, someone in Moshe's family, Moshe, um, not only getting leprosy, um, but, but using it as a way of driving home the relationship between God and the Jewish people and their being willing to come out. So uh, although I don't think Rashi goes there explicitly, right? He's not, he's actually not evoking um, Miriam here. You're right. It, it like, it, it, it's a Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb that we can then go back to once we get to the Miriam story, if we're students of Rashi. Great. Um, okay. Let's move forward. Let's um, go. 
I just wanted to add a bit of information. I, I realized we did do number nine because I remember reading it and reading the Rashi, which was a bit of a struggle. So we had done number nine as well. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to do it again. <laughs> we'll do it again. Um, uh, maybe a, a, a little quicker. Really? We, we did the Rashi on nine. Okay. I believe you. Um, let, let's do it again. Toby, you want it? Do you want to do it twice? Prefer not. Okay. Uh, Carol, do you want to read verse nine? Sure. Although with that introduction, I don't know. <laughs> um, Shana Tova, everybody. Good to see everyone. Um, Vehaya imlo ya aminu gam lishne ha otot ha ele, velo ishmaun le kolech, vela kachta mimeme ha yor, veshafachta. Hayabasha, Vehayu Hamaim Asherti Kach Min Hayaor, Vehayu Ladam Hayabashet. Okay, see if you can translate. Um, and, uh, and so it was, uh, uh, if, uh, so it's, and it will be. Looks like was, is, and, but it means it will be because it's the Vavaipuk. Oh, okay, okay, so I got it. Okay, so it will be if, uh, if they will not believe also the, uh, the two, uh, the, the two signs, these, these two signs, um, and they will not, uh, listen to or, or heed, uh, your, your voice, uh, and you will take, um, from the waters of, uh, is your, or the, specifically the Nile or it's just river question. in general? It's the, it's the Torah's use it's the Torah's word for this river um but it's we, we we don't know for sure if it's an ancient biblical word for meaning the the main river of a of a of a place which case it's the Nile or if this is a proper name but it's referring to the Nile here right okay the Nile um and uh you will spill you will spill it on the dry land uh and and it will be that the waters um, that you take from the Nile, and it will it will it will be uh, as blood will, will become. I guess it will become uh, blood on the dry land. Good. Uh, I think it's in the plague of frogs that you get your in a plural, referring to all the places, all the water sources. Where the frogs will come, yorehem, the agamehem, something like that. So the Torah seems to use uh, the or more generically as like all of your lakes and canals and rivers. And uh, Uncleus here translates yor as nahara, nahar, uh, river. So the the vocabulary word probably means river, but I suppose hayor is we're supposed to understand it to be the main river, right? And all the commentaries on it. Like we'll, uh, we'll refer to it as the Nilus. Okay, so great translation. Um, we have now kind of a third act in this in this uh, potential magic show that um, uh, most that you're going to do. Uh, and if the one with the tsara'at was a was a peep ahead to a peep ahead and a peep back, peep ahead to Miriam as Joanna suggesting, a peep back to Abimelech, then this one is certainly a peep ahead because what he's going to do in front of the Israelites if they don't believe the first two is obviously going to be um, anticipating the first major plague anyway.
Okay. What Rashi gets hung up on here, and we'll do this a little bit quickly, is just, uh, maybe I shouldn't say just, is a doubling of the word vihayu. So if we read it carefully, right? Not that you weren't reading it carefully, Carol, but if I just slow it down a little bit, that the sec- after the etnachta, after the vishafachta hayabasha, that you, uh, you'll, you, uh, you take, you've taken the water from the river and you throw it on the ground. And it will be that the water that you take from the river, and it will be that the, it will be blood on the ground. So if you slow it down that way and you emphasize that it will be that the second it will be is extraneous. Cause it could have said, and it will be that the Hayu, Hamayim, the water, Asher Tikach, that you've taken, Min Hayyor, from the river, Ladam by Abashet, will be blood when it gets to the uh, gets to the ground, right? So why the second Vihayu? We probably did this before, um, but let me just quickly see if Everett Fox's uh, translation makes sense, like even, even plays around with the second uh, It Shall Be. Everett Fox says, and it shall be, that's the first Vihayu. Actually, that's the first, that's the Vihaya in the beginning of the verse. If you, they do not put their trust, that's how he does um, uh, Ya'aminu, that put their trust in, in even these two signs and do not hearken to your voice, then take some water of the Nile. He translates your as Nile here, capital N, and pour it out in the dry land. And look what he does with the second half of the verse. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry land. He elides the second Vahayu. He doesn't trend, he doesn't give us two Vahayus because it's, it doesn't really seem to make sense in English. I'd be curious, even if we did it before, if there are any translations in front of us that, that seem to have the two Vahayus in there. Larry, Diane, do you have a translation? We're not home. We, we have nothing. We're oh. in Avi Parrot's land. You're in Avi Parrot's land, but was your hand up? Yeah, I, my hand was up for very brief other comments. If you want me to make them now or, or hold off? Hold, hold the comment, right? And let me. Um, one of them we, was about the translate. One of them was about complaining about the JPS translation because it it does it, it's completely untrue to the Hebrew. The JPS translation in the uh, that we that we have in our Eschaim Chumash. Yeah, which should be the same one that's on Safaria. Let's let's hear it since we're dealing with translations now. And if they are not convinced by both these signs and still do not heed you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And it, hyphen, the water that you take from the Nile, hyphen, will turn to blood on the ground. What do you so not the, like about it? Well, it, it, it? It ignores the double, the hayu. Right. So sim, it, it actually, in different in, in a different structure, it's doing something very similar to Ever Fox's. It, it, it's adding in these dashes which is, is almost suggested by the double the Hayu as if there's an interrupted thought. The Hayu, Hamayim Asher Tachmeyor, the Hayu, it's almost as if the Hebrew puts in its own dashes and then at the other end of the dash, it, it repeats the verb. So like I'm, I'm sympathetic to JPS's attempt there um, because otherwise, if you don't do whatever Fox or JPS did, and you care, as it were, you've got to do, you've got to do something akin to what Rashi does, which is lovely and fantastical, right? Um, with a, with a wonderful punchline. I, I love the punchline of this one, but it, it takes some jumps to get there. So Carol, if you'll read, uh, nine. Okay. Um, Remez, uh, 
Shabimaka Rishona Nifra Me'elo Elohotam. All right, pause one second. Which book are you reading from? Uh, I'm reading from... Not from this one, right? Correct. I'm reading okay. from something I printed from online. Okay, so that reminds me. This is a very strange thing we're about to... to I, I don't remember that we dealt with this last time. Occasionally, you'll see line, words within a Rashi commentary in brackets, and then our editor will say at the bottom, Bet Dalad Reish, Betfush Rishon Leita. It's not there in the first printing. But at least the editor of this one, because it's a scholarly um, version of Rashi, tells us that there were other potential additions to the Rashi text, but we're not clear how original it is. It's very rare that there are words that are attributed to Rashi that don't even appear on our page. And what, what Carol's reading from, and I'm going to pull up Safari in a second, um, is, is a two-part, it's a two-part Rashi before we even get to the Rashi that's on our page. And you, uh, I'll show it to you in a second. And it doesn't even make it onto the editorial chopping block of the, of our version. And I don't understand why. And I don't know how to, and I, I, and I can't figure it out. You know, there's, there's, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but, um, and I don't know enough about the editorial history of this, but if you look over here, this is Safaria's, uh, um, the, on chapter four, verse nine, Rashi. I don't actually even know from where Safaria sources the Rashi commentary, right? It's, it's somewhat open source. And, um, and again, and the, the reverse sometimes happens. Sometimes there's a version, some words of Rashi that don't appear on online versions or some versions, but they do appear in hours in brackets with an explanation. This is very uncommon. In fact, I don't remember a single time studying Rashi that I've come across this, uh, at least with this class. So now that we have that in front of us, uh, you can read, Carol, either from your book or the screen. Um, and this is all before we're going to get to the thing that I was setting up about the double the Hayus. So read this. Okay, because mine doesn't have the parenthetical stuff on your screen. So there's a double editorial oddity going <laughs> on here. Okay, go ahead. So this is from Vilakakta Mime Hayaor, Remez Lahem Shabimaka Rishona, Nifra Me'elohotam. Okay, so translate or read the translations right okay, there. Okay, so from the... Um, so taking from the waters of the river, it is a hint that with this, the first, um, with the first plague, I don't think Nifra is always bothered. It, 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 here it means to be, to, to, um, basically to claim recompense, to, to, um, to get payment from, to, 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 to punish as payment, essentially. From there, and this is there. Is this, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the grammar of, is it their, their God singular? It's really interesting. I, it's almost taking the, the pointed version. Um, somewhere I have a pointed, uh, version of this Rashi. The pointed version of this Rashi points that word as, hold on. Um, may Elahutam. Elahut is like, their divine concept, their divinity. It's not their God. Uh-huh. It's, it's like in modern Hebrew, El- El- Elahut is, uh, is, is, is the divinity of something, right? The, the notion of godliness. So Rashi seems to re- read this as the first thing that God will do when he gets to the Egyptians is to, is to demand payment 
not it doesn't say from El, El, Elohehem, their God, because that would be a very strong way of referencing the things that they believe in as a God, but the thing to which they attribute Elahut, divinity, right? Now, um, those words, I don't even know which order what to do this. Now, now, now read the parentheses, um, and, and we'll, we'll construct it backwards. Perush. Perush, Keshel Kadosh Baruch Hu Nifra Min Ha-Umot. Umot, yeah. Nifra Me-El-Elohutam Tehila. Shehayu Ovdim Lenilus. Yeah, Nile. Hamechaye Otam. Behaf Ham Ladam. Okay. So read that, translate that. So this is, this is a, an, a, 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 almost like a commentary on Rashi in a Rashi that, in, in a Rashi that doesn't appear in our very scholarly version of Rashi. It, it, it's, it's, it's a weird little rabbit hole. Okay. Uh, so, okay. So, uh, when God exacts retribution, uh, from the, from the nations, uh, uh, first, first exacts it from their their deity, their, right, or their divine uh, concept, whatever concept. Uh, oh, oh, because they they worshipped the Nile. Mechaya is that like it gives them life? I don't know. Yes. Yeah, like Mechaya Hametim, the right. Nile, which ha Mechayotam, which is the source of their life, which is their lifeblood, right? Which and is why. Right, the, 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 the commentaries see, understand that even though the Hebrew word is yaor, which might be a generic word, what we're talking about here is ha yaor, the, the river. Okay. Right. And then turns that into, into blood. And then those two words, birashi yashan, in an old Rashi manuscript. It's just weird because that's the very type of thing that you can imagine appearing in our version, which is the most kind of scholarly version of Rashi out there, may be in brackets and telling us that it's in Rashi Yashan. And even here, only the second part of this is Rashi Yashan. The first part seems to be Rashi, right? And I, I don't think, I'm, I'm guessing that no one has a version in front of them of the Rashi commentary where the first line of this is in any way indicated that it's not uh, original Rashi. The second one, yes, but the first, no. And none of it appears in ours. So I don't get it, uh, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's okay that I don't get it, but I don't get it. What's going on here in terms of content is we talked about, you know, jumping forward and jumping back in Emuk Damu Muhabar Torah, right? The significance according to this Rashi, if Rashi need wrote it, is that why is sign number three, right? Sign number two was staff, sign number, sorry, sign number one was staff and, and snake, sign number two was Moshe and Sarat and Avimelech and Miriam. Sign number three is um, is water turning to blood. And not only is it generically, or actually that's the wrong word. Not only is it is it pointing us to the first plague that's going to happen. It's also giving us a klal um, that the Israelites may be needed to know, which is that when God comes to smite a foreign nation that has been bad to the Jews, God first smites the divinity or the deity or the divine concept because the river is not just water it is or was to the uh, egyptians itself a god right a, a source of divine uh, power and illumination rick um 
I just had um, some trope observations um, that I wanted to share at some point. So I, I just thought I'd, I'd say that so, if, you're re- if you're ready now or you want to do it later. I'm ready for it now. Yeah. Okay. What time is it? Yeah, we have time because I, I, I want to make sure we actually get through the Rashi that apparently we did six weeks ago anyway, so we can get some new material. But I think we're yeah. already doing some version of new material because I don't remember looking at this Rashi Ashan last time. Rick? Yeah, well, we're going back and forth, like you said, back and forth um, between these two verses, eight and nine, and what actually happens when Moses gets to the elders. It's it's like it it, it doesn't match. Um, uh, God is saying, well, if, if they don't believe this, they'll believe this. And Vehaminu, the trope there is is very calm it, it there's there's not even a pashta with it there's no munach with it it's 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 very rare just to have a zakev katon on the top of the hemino they're just sitting there by itself and and you would think that uh believing would, would have more uh a, a more intense trope to it but that's just an observation then in the next sentence you got two pazers on God says, well, if, if they don't believe you, then here's a third one. And it's very rare to have two pazers. The only other place I can think is in the Ten Commandments. Um, but um, when you finally get to, and, and there's other vocabulary here, yishma'u, uh, there's other words here, okay? Uh, but the next time you have a pazer is when Moses meets the people, and it's... Mm-hmm. It's in verse 31. I think I said this before. I don't remember. Yes, I think you did. Okay. Say it again. And, it, and it's on Vayishmu. Um, so the bottom line is they did believe. They didn't even they didn't even need to get to the third one. Uh, they believe after the first two. And what I could find there um, in verse 30 is another Zakif uh, Katon on Kolhad Varim. It's it's very simple it's not very dramatic and stuff but but um Aaron says these things and um uh Moses does the sign the the two of them and and then verse 31 they believe via amen so um it's it, it's weird to me that the the two places don't match up and um and then let alone what happens when they get to pharaoh um so i, I I just wanted to say that. Great. The, the 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 first part of what you said, the kind of truncated staccato katon in the previous verse, it's always interesting when a verse or a note, which is usually part of a couplet, appears on its own. So if yes. if, if you're not a if you're not a, a Torah reader, that 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 comment doesn't make as much sense. But if you just look at what Rick was looking at in verse eight, imlo. Actually, look at that. There's the the the, the munach. That was, should have been when Vehaminu was put yes. in earlier. You have two Munachs where there should be one, and there's yeah, no Munach like where there should be one. Uh-huh. What Rick is saying is that Vehaminu is a katon. A katon by itself is odd. It's like a it's like a Q without a U, right? Yes. It's just it's almost I don't know, over ninety nine percent of the time that you have a katon, you've got a Munach before it. Um, and this is actually a long enough word that it could have been a word where you put a munach katon in the word. Veheminu, but it's just veheminu, and it's a little bit rushed rushed through it. I think the double pazer 
uh, Rick, is rare, but not as rare as you think. I, I can't think of obvious examples. Obvi- it's definitely in the Ten Commandments, but I think I think it's a little more common than than you, than you might think. But mm. I accept all the things that you're saying. Okay, Thanks. Tova, and then um, we're gonna read this, finish this Rashi. Right. By the way, this la- this this is definitely new. We didn't do this last time. Okay. Um, so comment on what we were reading. Um, I wonder if I was stumbling a little bit on the on the um, translation of retribution against the divinity and the uh, use of the, that Elohutam. Elahutam. Uh, because the image that that evoked for me was retribution in the sense of literally taking away from the perceived divinity, reducing uh, the divinity. So it's not just sort of an insult to what's perceived as divine, but in the eyes of the Egyptians seeing it is a challenge to their perception of it being divine at all, um, which is casts light for, you know, forward on the impact of the plagues. Mm. Yeah. It, it's interesting thing to think about it. it how do you exact recompense from a divinity that you don't consider to be a divinity? Right. Is is it reducing that divine source's significance in the eyes of the people who who, who uh, view it with with divinity, or are you actually are you actually doing something to it? So here it seems to be that when the Egyptians are going to see their their god water stricken. The injury is to the Egyptians, right? Not yeah. to the God water, because we don't think the God water is anything anyway. Right. So it's it's not so much that the actual divinity is injured, but the perception of it being divine is injured. I think so, and I and I appreciate that that subtlety, uh, Tovan. You're bringing that up, right? And 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 it's interesting language. If we want to do Rashi on Rashi, right? Um, <laughs> if we want to do Rashi on maybe Rashi, right? Because this is this is. Um, um, well, the, the Niframe Elahutan appears both in the first part of this comment and the second part. The second part is almost certainly not Rashi. The first part might be Rashi. Nifra, which is a interesting verb anyway, because it's a verb that is basically in the Nifal form, but somehow it's active. It's, 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 it really means that the subject of Nifra is God, but it's really exacting payment from the uh the the, the elahutan or or whatever the second half of the line um but it's written as if as a as a in, in, the, in a form that normally is passive so it's a weird verb anyway and from their elahut from their 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 godness their or the egyptian sense of what is godly about that river um joanna so while you were away and we met a few times, um, I happened to be reading a Rashi one day off of Safaria that was different than every anything. There were two or three editions of Rashi around the table, um, the virtual table. And what I was reading off of Safaria was different than what anyone else had. And without going into that now, it intrigued me enough to write to Safaria. Wow. And, and they answered me and they told me where they based it on and which was not the Leipzig edition, but the edition that they copied off of, a 1934 edition is what appears, is not available online. But they said 
that edition is based on the Leipzig edition, which is available online, and they directed it to me. And I just opened that edition, and the comment there is fascinating. The Leipzig edition, by the way, is uh, um, one of the most authoritative because there happens to be a note at the beginning of the person who wrote that manuscript said he was copying off of the manuscript of Rashi's secretary. So that note is very informative in terms of, you know, origin and um, being fairly early. And so the website that has the Leipzig edition on it has a footnote at the bottom of the page that handwritten in Paris edition number 155, there is this edition, what we just read. And at the end of that footnote, it lists five more editions that have it and five that don't, that I, I'm not familiar with, you know, the manuscripts that they're referring to, but I can only presume that they're early manuscripts. And it's interesting that it's tracked here. What fascinating gumshoe work um, that you did there. Um, I was taping the background because I just saw an email from Barry Rosenblatt that he had a hard time getting onto the Zoom and I was just sending him the link again. So I apologize about that. I hope there are others who were not struggling to get on. Um, uh, fascinating. I, I have nothing to add, but that's just fascinating. I, I, lo- I love the fact that we live in a world where you can, you can write Safari and they'll write back. <laughs> like, um, and that there, you, can, you can track how like, it's both open source and also very highly and, and intentionally curated how these texts get in front of us. Beautiful. Thank you, Joanna. Uh, Larry Dayan, you're not going to let us finish this, are you? I'll be real quick. One of the things I wanted was to ask Rick to comment on the trope. I'm glad he did. I'm sorry he didn't mention also the Kadma Vazla at the beginning. But the other trope question that I have Which is... Oh, Lashnea Otot. Yeah, got it. Okay. And the other, but the other trope question that I had is, it just seemed to me that the Etnachta is misplaced because I would have placed the Etnachta on the Le Kolecha because that's, that's the antecedent to the, to the whole, whole thing. But then if you read Rashi, it kind of explains why um, they placed that Nakhta where they did, because of the separation of um, what Rashi, what, what, what you want to get to about Rashi's explanation of second Rashi. So I'm not going to steal your thunder there. But I who's, want to answer. Who's the they that you're referring to in terms of who put the trap? It's the Masorites. The Masorites. It's the Kaddish Baruch Hu. What are you talking about? Okay. Well, why, okay. So why he wanted, why, why God, not he, <laughs> wanted to direct us to that. Um, but the other question that I had before we get to the second Rashi is, in the first Rashi, so I'm just going to read the English translation, okay? You shall take the water of the river and says, he alluded to them, so question mark, who is them, that with the first plague, he will exact retribution from their deity. So to be consistent, their deity would be the Egyptians. But the first, but, but, this is all directed toward the Israelites, not to, to the Hebrews. It's not directed toward the Egyptians. So I don't understand to whom Rashi is referring, or the period of Rashi in this first first Rashi, um, who the them is, who the them and the there are. Yeah. Uh, great. Maybe this is why the editor of our uh, edition of Rashi decided he doesn't, doesn't even belong on the page. Um, what what Larry's asking um, is really interesting in terms of who is the who is denoted in the pronouns or the prepositional pronouns in this in the first part of this maybe Rashi, because the the context we are in right now is still God trying to convince Moshe that Moshe convinced the Israelites to follow him. 
we're not yet in God trying to against Moshe that he'll be able to be effective in front of the Egyptians. We're just, if they don't listen to the first two, um, two signs, listen to the third. So the Ramaz Lahem, God, it's interesting because Rashi is kind of speaking in God's voice because the Vilakachtamehayor is God's voice. But what, what's really going on here is Rashi saying that in God reinforcing this to Moshe, through Moshe, God was hinting to them, which I initially read as the Israelites, hinting to them what? Some concept, which is actually not that integral to the moment, but it's going to be integral later on, that when this God comes and smites the Egyptians, if you listen to Moshe and agree to be led by Moshe, the first thing that God is going to smite is that which is most sacred to them. But you're right that the... That the um, the Lahem and Elahutam, them, hinted to them and their divinity, maybe should match. In which case, it's God through Moshe hinted to the Egyptians who were maybe watching the scene between God, between Moshe and the Israelites, that watch out, folks. If, if this thing happens, if I become this leader and they agree to follow me, your gods are going to be smitten first. It's a little, it's a little wonky. Um, and again, we have no idea if Rashi wrote this. And it's, and it's odd to me that um, um, that our manuscript, as we uh, said before, d- doesn't have it. All of that leads us to the Rashi that we may have done. This may be the Rashi that um, Tova broke her teeth on last time, um, which is almost certainly Rashi and is a bit of a, 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 a maze. But at the end of the maze, there's something lovely. And we'll see if we can get through that quick enough to actually start the next verse, which may be the first true new material. So, Carol, do you want to read the next one? Do you want do you want me to just do this quicker? Up to you. Well, I'll, I'll try. I'll try. Okay. I've been practicing. <laughs> Good. Vehayu hamayim vegomer. Vehayu vehayu shtev hamim. Nireb be'enai ilu neemar vehayu hamayim asher takach min hayor ledam biyabashet shomea ani shbeado heim nehachim ledam ve'af kashiardu laaretz. Yehu bihutan. The haviyatan. The haviyatan. Right. That the haviyatan is 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 created from the gerund of the verb to be havaya. They will be in as they had been in their very being. They will continue to be as they were. Aval achshav melamdenu shelo yudam ad sheyu biyabashet. Okay. Um. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, so the vehayu, uh, so it will be. <clears throat> excuse me. Happens two times. Uh, it appears to me if if it said, um, and the the and and it will become. It will be that the water that 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 you take from the uh, Nile from the river uh, becomes. Uh, becomes blood on the dry land, I hear that in your hand it turns into blood. Um, and so when it goes to the dry land, it it, it stays the same. It, be- it becomes the same or stays the same. Good. But now we learn that that it does not become blood until it hits the dry land. Okay. So we have three things to do here, right? After Carol translated it perfectly. One, make sure we understand what Rashi is seeing in the verse. Right. Two, um, 
you know, like, like, like then, then put the whole comment together and then three ask the question, so what? And footnote uh, nine, which is quoting the Levush Ha'ura, which is a 16th century super commentary on Rashi written by Rabbi um, Mordechai Yafe from the Prague, Bohemia area, um, gives us some sense as to what this is, why this is even happening, right? So remember we said that the, the, the two Bahayus are weird. And what Rashi says is, if the second Vahayu were not there, I might understand it to mean that the the water which you take from the um, the river will be like blood. Once uh, it will be like blood. As soon as the water is in your hand, it will be turned to blood, and it'll remain blood when it's thrown on the ground. But the second Vahayu separates the ideas, and it says that that water that you take in your hand from the river, which is still water, it's water in your hand, what's going to happen? When that water hits the yabashet, hits the ground, it's going to be blood. Okay? An extremely subtle distinction. And, and, and maybe it's compelling that that second vahayu makes it even more clear that the water is not going to be turning to blood until it hits the ground. Not that I think any of us would have had the supposition that had the second vahayu not been there, we would have said, oh my goodness, that means that the water is turning to blood in his hand. But the next level is, so what, right? So, so let, let's say Rashi is right. Let's say that, that the second Hayu reinforces to us that the, that the trajectory of this miracle is a man scoops up water from the river, holds water in the hand, it looks like water, throws it onto the ground, and as soon as it hits the ground, it turns to blood. Why is that more significant than the possibility that when he scoops up water in his hand, the water is already bloody, and then it just remains bloody as he throws it. So, Rebecca, Joanna, Tova. So, let me know if my sound is coming through, because my computer is being weird that way. And hopefully you hear me. We hear you. Um, so, um, I really like this, Rashi, because it sort of highlights and defines what I saw as the difference between these first two otoks and the third one which was that the first two were um, reversible, while the third one seems mm. to be irreversible. And so um, by saying it's not happening in his hand, you can't just throw it back into the oil and it will turn to water. It's just a very, you know, it's a finite, um, I don't know how to say this exactly, but it's an irreversible phenomena and therefore it's more convincing than the first two are taught that might be just magic, that, you know, uh-huh. sleight of hand, you know, quick, uh, something, uh, quick motion, a sleight of hand that a magician would do. Good. So the sleight of hand part is exactly how the Lavush Ha'ora reads it, which is that if I thought that the water had turned to blood in his hand, I might have thought he was holding on to some dye in his hand that, that wasn't obvious beforehand. And he puts the water in his hand and, oh, magically it turns to water. It turns to blood. But if it's water in his hand and then he throws it in the air and as it's falling into the air and it hits the ground, it turns to blood, that can't be done with, with, with magic dye. Therefore, it's more powerful. Therefore, the God he represents is more powerful. That's a little Lubusha Ora reason. You're, you're reading it that way. Plus, you're saying that, that the water being blood when it hits the ground it, it, it dissipates. It, 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 it's, it's, no one can, cl- can pull that water up again and, and undo that. Um, and therefore, it's a more powerful symbol. I suppose one could say to that, that even if it's the case that if the water were blood in his hand, which at that point you might say, 
he's still holding it so he could re- reverse it. Once he throws it onto the ground, it's it, 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 it's it's dispersed. There's no way to collect it again. That for that that second part of it is is just as powerful, independent of when the water turned into blood, right? Which is the which is the the point that Rashi is driving home here. But yes, there's something final about this miracle. It's not just going to be uh, re- reversed by by a counter spell, right? You know, like a Harry Potter counter spell. Um, to, uh, Joanna and Tova. Um. So I was basically going to say the same thing about that. So I won't go there. But if I may, I just wanted to go back to Larry's last comment, because um, I think it's quite a fascinating interpretation, because at the end of chapter three, God is talking to Moses about going in front of the Egyptians. And Our chapter four marking is pretty much an artificial marking added later by Christians. So chapter four could continue on. And I realize, though, that at least for me, every time I see chapter four and I start reading there, I always read the them as the Israelites. But I think there's a possible read that from the very beginning of chapter four until now, the them, the people that Moshe is going to be talking to about what if they do not believe me? is continuing the conversation that God had just initiated at the end of chapter three, that the them is the Egyptians. And even when we get to five, that they may believe in the Lord, um, uh, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there's a possible read there. It wasn't a problem for other nations to have other deities, right? So their deity of the now was the most powerful, but there could be other deities and getting them to realize, oh, hey, the Israelites also have a God protecting them. You know, maybe we need to be careful. And then in what we're going to do next week, when Aaron first comes to, into the picture to be the spokesperson, you know, it's Moses continuing to raise his concerns. The first part of four is his concern about going in front of the Egyptians. And when we get to verse 10 next week, now, okay, so that's been addressed, but now I have a concern about going in front of the Israelites. Fascinating. So what you're commenting on, Joanna, is pure shot, because it's pretty clear, particularly with the first two plagues, that Rashi's commentary is reading it as Moshe being nervous about the Israelites believe, believing him. But Rashi is not the only person to study Torah, and we're entitled to our own interpretation. And I have, I have to think more about that, because I'd never considered that. Uh, I have to think more about whether or not um, particularly... Like the, as you mentioned, you you did a good job of, of naming the bugaboo in your in your own commentary, which is the Elohei Abraham Elohei Yitzchak. Um, but I want to think about if this flow can make sense, where all of the them's that are being referenced are the Egyptians and not the Israelites, and it certainly would make it a little bit easier to deal with the Ramazlehem Be'elahutam in that Rashi, which may not be Rashi. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Tova, you maybe get the last comment of the day. Okay. Um, going to the, um, what, what we were talking about before about the, the blood, it, when it leaves his hands, uh, water, when it leaves his hands becoming blood. Uh, it, I was thinking maybe in addition to, uh, getting away from the idea that somehow it's a trick, getting away from the idea that somehow it is the power of Moshe that is affecting this change that he scoops the water, it's water in his hand when he throws it and it becomes blood, that's not anything coming from him, that's God. 
Oh, great. So it, it emphasizes more the real source of these ot. Great. I love that. So that's like a, 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 a parallel commentary to the Levush's commentary on Rashi. Yeah. It, 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 the, the moment that the transition okay. is happening is after Moshe has no longer, yeah. no longer touching it. So Moshe is the instrument, but God is the miracle worker. Yeah. I love that. Really, really good. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.